So I wanted to welcome you all to Sunday service at Ananda Village and especially to our guests and visitors. Uh, I am Naya Swami Parvati, this is Naya Swami Pranava. And I also wanted to congratulate our yoga teacher training course graduates and to welcome everyone to Inner Renewal Week at Ananda Village. It's a wonder, going to be a wonderful week. I'd like to read now from Rays of the One Light. This is written by Swami Kriyananda, but based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda and its commentaries on the, both the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. The mystery of avatara or divine incarnation. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. The Bhagavad Gita in the fourth chapter states, as we saw last week, O Bharata, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I incarnate on earth. Taking visible form, I come to destroy evil and reestablish virtue. What is the mystery of this divine manifestation? Great avatars such as Krishna and Jesus Christ are born as babies even as we all are. They take human form and go through normal human experiences as they grow from childhood to adulthood. They eat, they play. They may seem to suffer sickness and disappointment like the rest of us. In what way are they different from other human beings? The important thing to understand is that even as they are like us, so we also are like them. Their realization can be ours too. They come on earth to show us our own divine potential. The difference lies not in the manner of their manifestation on earth, but in the consciousness with which they are born. All things are condensation, so to speak, of the cosmic vibration, Om, described by St. John's Gospel as the Word. Most human beings, however, are unconscious of their divine origin. The avatars, on the other hand, come consciously as manifestations of that divine reality. As the Gospel says in the first chapter, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. short whispers from eternity from Paramahansa Yogananda, so pay attention. Flowers, cloud-scattered skies, and all beautiful blossoming scenery, all these only suggest thy divinity. I enjoy them, I revel in them, but then they remind me of thee. In that remembrance, these mere, though glorious messengers vanish, and the beauty of my own beloved infinity 
enthralls me. Very sweet and beautiful. Not that it has anything to do with what I'm going to talk about. I just re- I've rarely ever read that one at a Sunday service, and I thought it's so sweet, and it has such great power in its sweetness that I thought at least I could say it's sort of what an avatar has, power and sweetness. When we start to really move forward on the spiritual journey, when we're dedicating uh, our lives more, when we're bringing more sincerity on the spiritual journey, there is change. It is change that's guaranteed. And primarily it's change within our own selves. There will be change around us, but uh, we should definitely not hold the expectation that that will change. But we will change. And mysteries such as what an avatar is, uh, plus a whole lot of other things. I was with uh, the uh, uh, group here the other night going over the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And if you've ever delved into them, you'll know that it isn't as if you're going to pick them up the first reading, what they really uh, have. There's such a depth and so many layers to that depth. And so there are, in a sense, as this reading says, these mysteries. But they become less of a mystery as we grow. But I was remembering this humorous scene in this recent movie called The Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying I watched it. Um, um, but there was this really humorous scene where, uh, you know, it's a science fiction movie, and the main characters are in this prison, and they're planning their escape. And uh, there's three of them, I believe. And the, the one is always using metaphors. And the other one says to, about the third character, on his planet, they don't relate to metaphors. He doesn't get it. Uh, you know, they'll just go over his head. And the guy says, no, I've got quick hands. I'll get them. I'll grab them above my head when they're going over. <laughs> and it's sort of how some of us are with the spiritual teachings. <laughs> we, don't, we don't necessarily grab them in the right way. You know, we'll stab at them. But, you know, to tell you the truth, that's not bad. Joe Tish and Davey write this uh, weekly blog called Touch of Light, which I highly recommend. And in this recent one this past week, Joe Tish wrote one, and he uh, is that um, understanding is overrated. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about that it's more that if we s- stop ourselves because we don't understand things, then we'll keep stopping. We won't really move forward, but rather to go with the energy flow, to really move forward where we want to go. The whole idea, less even of an avatar, of just talking about a guru, for some of us, when we first came on the path, or if you're new uh, here today, can be perplexing. I remember when I was 17, I started to hear and read about this idea of the guru, and couldn't quite relate to it. It was an intriguing idea. I couldn't quite have any connection with it. And when I was 18, I began to meditate. I learned to meditate and began my daily practice. And a few months later, I went to a weekend meditation retreat. Now, it wasn't related to these teachings. It was another form of meditation. But I remember in one of the evening discussions, uh, that was questions and answers with some of the leaders of the weekend, that the question came up, do you need a guru? Is a guru helpful? And everyone shied away from it. 
it was more a meditation emphasis that was the technique approach. It really didn't cluster around a whole lot of the philosophy and understandings that Yogananda brought. But to my surprise, I actually stood up and said something because I didn't really mean to. I was fairly shy. And uh, I said, no, it seems like it's probably a good thing. And then I sat down. I could see people sort of... <laughs> He's one of those, you know, you lead him by the nose and he'll go anywhere. I could feel that energy around some of those people. So, um, and it wasn't until maybe a year later that I actually got to read the autobiography of Yogi. And then a lot more came into focus. But I'd been meditating for a year and a half, granted other techniques. But the idea that the mysteries start to come to us as something real because we're changing. We're, with our dedication, with our sincerity, not only with our attitudes, but in meditation. We changed. I remember reading this study where they, in the study, took people and asked them to conceptualize God. Now, even for us here, that would be an interesting exercise to do. How would you, on paper, draw the image of God that's meaningful to you? I mean, think about that. That's quite interesting. What they found, though, was that people who had a more interior life with their religion, that meditated, had introspection, were able to be more in that interior experience. Very interestingly, they were equally fine with drawing God as a personal concept, you know, like a motherly figure or the eyes of a loving friend, as well as drawing a more abstract experience of God, you know, like expanding light or swirling energies or some other, again, more removed from the personal. But it was interesting that this balance started to happen in people when they had the, that focus of bringing it alive from an interior life. Now, that's very, very interesting. And what it points out in a way that the study didn't point out is that when we grow in our experiences, we no longer are as puzzled by these questions that loom pretty large and unanswerable for most people. That how could you possibly conceive of God? It's just your little personal sentimental attachment to this or that or lack of therefore that, that approach. But really it's just saying my experience is what's leading me rather than my mind. And that's why Jyotish's statement, understanding is overrated, that the mind at best is only going to really give us a touch of what anything is that has a subtler level. If you think about it, belief is how the mind is able to enter into something by thinking about it. Now, belief can become very empowering. It's, it's a very powerful part of our experience and is indeed a part of all of our experiences when we come into something that we're not familiar with, that we don't have any experience with, we're going to use belief as a very motivating force to move from where we're at somewhere else, and hopefully expansively so. But belief will tend to circle around its wagons 
in a certain way. And what happens when we don't continue to have that sincerity in a practical, tangential, I mean, not tangential, but experiential way, then what will happen with our awareness is that it has to go in one direction or the other if you just leave belief without experience. And that's one way is that you tend to invest a lot of energy in believing it more and want to have others support your belief. That happens a lot in religion. You know, this is what the teaching is, and you better believe it as well because I think it's really good. It's good for you as well. And that's dogma. That's when we get caught by that influence of our insecurity, our not being sure, but heck, I want to be sure. But if I'm leaving it just to the mind and belief, there's no way for it to become sure. So we want to have that surety of others supporting that same belief system. The other thing that happens, and it's happening in both ways in our world, our globe today, the other way is that we just say, that is not real. There's no proof. There's no backup of this. It's just your uh, insecurity saying you want God in your life uh, to others, and we, we find people backing off. And so you have this polarity in our culture, in our, in our whole world, more so in, uh, in Western nations where you have, you know, growing uh, atheism or at least, uh, you know, people being more agnostic. And yet you find more people being caught in fundamental religions. But neither one is going to work. Neither one really satisfies us. Neither one of them is going to be our experience of that truth. And so when you first come on the spiritual journey, you hear things about the guru or the avatar. I mean, heck, what the heck is an avatar compared to a guru is probably not that clear for me and a lot of us in this room. You know, it's because we can say the words, and I can say this to you, that uh, a guru is one that is given that gift of God to help others on the path. And then as that may be at all sorts of levels of what that consciousness is in the guru. But essentially the journey for not only gurus, but for each one of us, is not different. That our exploration of who we are unfolds and uncovers that we're here to expand our consciousness to let go of the ego. And when the ego is no longer... Uh, a component in driving our lives, which seems like a remarkable thing, but is possible, that we become what's known as jivan muktas, freed while living in this world. We're freed from any more karma, but we're not freed from karma. We're not freed from the karma that's already in motion in our lives. But it doesn't matter at that point because there's no karma that's being added. There's no connectedness to karma anymore because the ego is not an element the soul has risen to its real glory of being that manifestation of the divine but there is residual past karma but whether it takes uh, another million lives or it it goes in 
a meditation in a minute. That's really just not that significant at that point. But once that karma that's residual from the past is resolved, then one becomes what's known as a paramukta, a siddha, and completely free. That's, that's really the state of being a master, of being in what we call Christ consciousness and cosmic consciousness. But then what's an avatar? It has to do with love. It has to do with compassion. That an avatar is that freed soul that is there to come back into this material world to help all of us. There's no driven force for that to happen for the avatar. It is just this desireless desire, the compassion, that unconditional, pure love that wants to waft its way, be the aroma that we're all in, to lift us up to that experience. And so, on our part, if we can love more deeply, if we can love more purely, meaning as we dive deep within in that love, it's not so much that we're looking at love as a, I give you love, I would like love back. That's naturally a human experience and part and parcel of who we are. But as we deepen, especially as we go deeper within in meditation, we start to know, we start to feel, we start to realize what that love is. In The New Path, as well as some other books that Swami Kriyananda has written, uh, he quotes Yogananda in saying something that's very, very, very interesting. He said, it's better not so much to go with love of God, but joy or bliss. And it doesn't say this, but this is the way that I relate to it. To feel the joy of love. It actually is the experience that we have. We feel the joy, the bliss of opening our hearts to feel more unconditional love rather than that love that is based on an expectation or based on something. It is just that purity, that experience. And I know that that sometimes, and you've probably maybe in one way or the other experienced this, I know at times in my own chanting that there are certain chants I can't even chant out loud because the tears start to come. There's just this real experience. It isn't as if I'm chanting to go somewhere with my devotion. It's just that connectedness. It's just that openness. It's just that sense that the nurturing compassion of the divine is there. Even sometimes before I start chanting, that feeling is there. And the chanting... Just being in that flow uh, makes me realize that it's not even the chanting that has anything to do with it. It's just that that's who we are in that pure love. And so when we have this idea that can seem abstract, this idea of the avatar, what's our role in it? To open ourselves. Now, we may not feel comfortable if we're newer on the path of saying, For sure, I get it. I'm going to love the avatar. Uh, 
That's not that important. What's important that we open ourselves continuously to the experience of being more aware of that love. Not that we're demanding it of ourselves or demanding it from the divine, not demanding it from the avatar or the saints. But we're offering. That's the link that gives us the experience that makes it real for us. When we were chanting this chant, I only want to do one chant today. It was sort of an unusual thing that we do, only one chant. Normally we have two. But I thought, I just really want to capture, for me, and hopefully you likewise can, would capture it, just that sense. If you think of that chant, I am the sky, Mother. I am the sky. I am the vast blue ocean of sky. I am a little drop of the sky. Frozen sky. Meaning that we're in that expanded awareness. But it starts off, I am the sky, Mother. It's here I am, Mother. That that connectedness. To me, it just felt like the vibration, the feeling of that is the devotion of how we relate to the divine. Whether we call it divine mother, call it the avatar. But the avatar in this sense is that grace that can be available to us. Remember, inevitably, on the spiritual path, we too will go through those stages of being a highly developed devotee, to becoming a jivan mukta, freed while living in this world, to becoming a siddha, a paramukta, freed, liberated completely. We're all destined to be in that flow. There isn't one person on this planet that doesn't have that same destiny. We may look at ourselves and say, maybe, but how many lifetimes down the road will that be real? Well, that's part of the dilemma. We already place ourselves separate from that. But if we just open up our hearts with sincerity, with devotion, and not so much even personalize or uh, make an idealistic uh, focus of anything, but just the flow of, of love itself. Not to have conditions or a binding sense of that love, but just an openness. Because then the avatar is already with us. Before we even chant, before we even pray, before we even meditate. So why do we do all those things? Why? Because we want to secure ourselves in that offering ever more completely, not leaving any nook or cranny that isn't that experience, but just to be completely there because the divine is always completely with us. And our role, our part in life, to simplify to real basics, is to offer ourselves back into that divine and feel the grace, feel those blessings, and be one in it. Let's meditate for a moment. 